0: go. the podcast platform of The Phenomenalist, by Leopold Lambert. Today, Politics of the Bruins, What's hidden Done Under Rubble, with Gaston Gordia. Hello everyone. Today, my guest is Gaston Garijo, uh, who is a professor of anthropology at the uh, University of British Columbia in Vancouver, uh, and uh, he's uh, he's from uh, originally from Argentina, and uh, he's been publishing uh, uh, two books. The first one, uh, Lans- Landscapes of Devils, at Duke University Press, and uh, the forthcoming one called Rubble, R uh, U uh, B B L E. <laughs> uh, the afterlife of destruction, and that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. Uh, he is uh, trying to articulate uh, um, uh, a theoretical work around around questions of space, questions of bodies, questions of ruins, of buildings, uh, and uh, that's something that's uh, mostly visible uh, online on spaceandpolitics.ca. Um, hello, Gaston. Hey Leopold, how are you? <laughs> Good, <laughs> thanks. Uh, uh, so as I as I mentioned, we will we will talk about this uh, this forthcoming book uh, that you have, uh, which will be published in to, uh, in in August 2014. Uh, but before before that, maybe just to to have a small. Introduction to our past collaboration. Uh, you were one of the recent uh, contributors to this series that I'm uh, curating, the Philomathes Papers, uh, and uh, maybe to explain a little bit, the, on, the only uh, the only editorial um, uh, uh, constraints that I give for this second series of the Philomathes Papers was to to question to bring a question about uh, about The notion of body as open-ended as it sounds uh maybe just to start this conversation could you could you tell us could you tell the listeners what you what you've wrote about for this series
1: yes absolutely and and thank you by the way for the opportunity to have this this no please thank you (laughs) looking forward to it thank you um well basically i first encountered the uh, memoirs by Albert uh, Speer, you know, uh, the close friend of Hitler, uh, top member of a Nazi hier- hierarchy, who wrote in uh, his memoirs what specialists have been calling the, uh, his theory of ruins. So initially, I engaged with his work be- be- uh, because of my interest in rubble, in ruins, and I talk a little bit about that in in uh, uh, in my book. <clears throat> Basically, Speer argued that you know, in order to to have a lasting um, transcendental uh, um, importance as an empire, you know, Nazi Germany should be should build majestic, imposing buildings in order to create uh, impressive ruins in the future. So there was a always I found that a, a pretty fascinating way in which ruins become the kind of a fetish of sorts, through which the power of the state will linger, despite the fact that that state will have crumbled. Mm. So. So basically, at one point, I, I found, uh, uh, I got the whole book by Speer, and, and decided to, to to read it. And I, I was really fascinated by by the way he he talked about his relationship with Hitler. But specifically, I was fascinated by the type of architecture uh, he became famous for. Obviously, being a, the chief Nazi architect, uh, I found a lot of ideas coming together in in his argument about space, architecture, power, and, and affect and specifically how architecture obviously, especially when we're thinking of monumental architecture is made to affect the body in a particular way. And that's that's why when you invited me to participate in the Phenomenalist papers, I thought, well, I can really analyze how through his memoirs we can see this very interesting connection between power, architecture, and affect on the body. Uh, and basically what I wrote in that piece is how Uh, uh, And this is something that is quite fascinating. And and again, quite a few people have written about this, uh, but I felt not probably not deep enough, uh, deeply enough, which is how uh, uh, really for for Hitler and for Speer, monumental architecture was a weapon of sorts, an effective weapon. And that's why the the title of my essay was uh, Nazi Architecture as Effective Weapon. Uh, uh, and here I've been also inspired by your own work on weapon- weaponized mm-hmm. architecture, uh, in how you know arch- there's no innocence as you argue in the way buildings are designed. There's always a, a calculation about how the built environment will affect mobility, will affect the body, uh, and in the case of spear, that became very very apparent. Um, with the inter- interesting twist. Which is that, as I argue in the, in, in the piece um, in, in this um, essay, in contrast to the weaponized architecture, say of, of a wall that you know has a very mechanical, if you like, uh, function, the idea is to keep bodies apart uh, in, in, a, in a physical sense, that's one way of weaponizing architecture. in this case, we're talking about you know these huge monumental buildings that Speer and Hitler uh, designed together. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and that's the other thing that the book, uh, uh, Speer's book reveals very powerfully, which is that uh, they were indeed working together. Not, it, it wasn't simply that Speer was the architect. Uh, obviously he was the, the professional architect, uh, uh, but Hitler, he saw himself uh, as, a, as, a, as an architect. He says uh, over and over, and Speer is very clear about that, that he, he wished he had been a professional architect and that his true passion in life was, uh, uh, was architecture, and there are very uh, interesting uh, moments in the book in which uh, Speer describes how excited Hitler got when when talking about architecture. So even throughout the the war, uh, even when you know Nazi Germany was collapsing, Hitler kept on dreaming of of his buildings. Obviously, th- these monuments were not uh, built for for the most part, except for for some uh, buildings or. Built, you know, in the 1930s, uh, uh, before the war started. Uh, but anyway, I, basically, I tried to articulate how architecture, space, uh, uh, affect, and power really come together in a very powerful way, specifically uh, in the case of Nazi Germany. But not only. Uh, uh, and this is why I end the, the essay uh, showing how even though, you know, Nazi Germany is gone, and obviously Spears monumental architecture uh, was the product of a very particular time and had clear fascist overtones Um, how you know if we look at architecture today it's also weaponized in an effective uh, way if we look at you know the imposing skyscrapers we see in Hong Kong or Dubai these are also buildings that are made to affect to impress to create this sense of awe uh, in the body that uh despite different historical contexts i think has uh uh relevant political uh effects uh in the sense that we can th- see you know some part of the ideological power of capitalism today is this capacity to create spectacular spaces that that numb and and, and make people go like oh my god what an amazing skyscraper so uh, that type of affective response that you feel in the body uh, that's what Hitler and Speer uh, had in mind uh, when they were also designing, uh, uh, again, and this is something I also write about uh, in the essay, that Hitler was really obsessed with size. He always wanted to build the biggest of everything, of uh, the biggest building, the biggest uh, uh, train station, um, uh, yeah, the because boulevards he was obsessed with surpassing any other empire uh, regarding any type of architecture, so again, the fascism of the Nazi variety is gone, yet uh, my point, like I said before, is that you know we still see in the present similar attempts to weaponize architecture in, a, uh, in an effective sense. Mm-hmm
0: interesting because I, I had a similar experience than the one you describing about like the, the Dubai and Hong Kong skyscrapers. Yesterday, I was in Seattle, and I saw this uh, this building uh, done by um, uh, Minoru, Minoru Yamazaki, uh, uh, and and was was in a in a sort of terrified oh of uh, in front of uh, this building that basically has its 12 first floors uh, uh, in massive opaque concrete, but, but, um, uh, the, the base, the base of the building is actually much smaller than the the base of the plan of the office, uh, upstairs. So the, the base reduces itself as, as it reaches the floor. And I, I, I had very much a, a sort of body bodily reaction to it in, in sort of simultaneity of, 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 uh, oh and uh and terror <laughs> of in front of this uh ultimate uh uh capitalist fortress. Uh, um but so I yeah I think I think it says a lot that uh, someone like Hitler would have wanted to be an architect. It shows it 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 say it says more it says more about architecture than about Hitler, I think <laughs> But so let's go back to even though we we can already see how it's uh, uh, what we just discussed is uh, is already very much within the topic we're going to talk about today and and this idea of the of the production uh, the production of Rune or the what what ruin can tell us about uh, uh, politics and space uh, but maybe if you could explain um, the sort of genesis of of uh, of uh, your argument in rubble. Uh, in particular with the situation in northern northern argentina where you had some uh, uh from from what i read from you uh um uh, some indigenous interactions against uh some eminent domain uh, uh uh action of the government to claim some land to do some soy soy field
1: is is that right uh, could could you maybe tell us more about that um yes um Let's see. I mean what's going on right now is that you know northern Argentina like the, pretty much all of lowland most of lowland South America is going through what people call the the, the soy boom. It's uh, uh soy has become an extremely profitable commodity uh, and soy is mostly planted by big agribusinesses like firms uh that are fully mechanized. So basically you have an expansion of the agribusiness frontier happening all across lowland South America, including northern Argentina, and that leads to evictions, uh, deforestation, violence, uh, uh, and and conflict. Um, I wouldn't say this is triggering an insurrection, uh, at least not yet. Uh, But yeah, there are many localized uh, uh, oppositions and and struggles involving uh, the soy frontier. Um, So that's the region where I did my field work for Rubble, even though when I arrived there in 2003, this is basically at northwest Argentina, the foot of the Andes, uh, uh, meeting the lowlands of the Gran Chaco, which are the tropical lowlands of northern Argentina, also covering uh, western Paraguay, part of uh, southeast Bolivia. Basically, you know, you have the Amazon in 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 the north, and then you have the the Gran Chaco south of the Amazon. So it's, it's tropical, but uh, pretty dry compared to the Amazon so this region historically was inhabited by indigenous people who put up a fierce resistance against first the Spanish and then the Argentine state and it was only in the late 1800s early 1900s that finally the Argentine government sent the army in and incorporated these groups and this region into Argentine territory um, yet for many decades this was an impoverished area heavily forested there were state Asians, uh, uh, people migrated for work elsewhere. Uh, yet we see only in the past 10, 15 years that we see a, a massive land expropriation coming in involving soy. Uh, <clears throat> in my earlier work, I had done field work among indigenous people deeper into the Chaco on the border with Paraguay, uh, about three, 400 kilometers uh, east of the mountains. So for this project, I decided to... Move closer to the Andes to initially investigate something that was totally unrelated to soy. Uh, uh, initially, again, back then this was not on my radar at all. Uh, basically, uh, I, I have been interested in ruins for a long time. You know, as you know, these objects in which uh, history, space, materiality, memory, decay come together in very interesting ways. Uh, and what picked my curiosity was that I I read in in the media in Buenos Aires that some archaeologists had discovered some overgrown ruins of Spanish forts and Jesuit missions from the 1700s that most people thought were totally gone. But, you know, these people found those ruins in in this area. Uh, And because I had read the history of these places from my previous uh, research, uh, yeah, I was curious as to, uh, especially whether those places and ruins would mean anything to local people. So I was interested in doing an an ethnography of of ruins. Uh, As a social anthropologist, I I wouldn't go there to dig uh, and study these ruins archaeologically, but I wanted to analyze the significance, you know, and how people related to those places. So when I arrived there in 2003, I did find these uh, uh, very interesting overgrown ruins from the Spanish era prior to Argentina's independence. But I was also struck, and this is, you know, I start off my book describing my arrival and how I was really impressed to see how just, in some cases, a few hundred meters away, next to these ruins from the 1700s, you will see the bulldozers moving in to evict people and and destroy forests to plant uh, soy, and therefore creating... um, Yet another form of ruination and destruction and creating also ruins of a a different type, but ruins nonetheless. Uh, I I was also very impressed on that trip uh, to see the the ruins of of the railroads that had been privatized by the Argentine government in the 90s. You know, Argentina, like much of Latin America in the 1990s, became... The big experiment for neoliberal reforms way before this happened in, in Europe or, mm. or North America.
0: And we know where that led.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was obviously in Argentina, it led to a total collapse mm. in 2001 and two with a major insurrection. That, in that case, does the apt word, or major uprisings, riots. Uh, and that led to the rise of a more of a center left yeah. government, the Kirchner, the
0: Kirchner couple.
1: Yeah. Mm. Uh, you know, which is also kind of a. a um, a very strange political phenomenon with, you know, they have center-left progressive elements, yet at the same time, they're, they were always fully supportive of the agribusinesses and Monsanto that are mm-hmm. very active behind soy. So, uh, um, yeah, it's they have been pushing for what we can call a, a kind of a populist capitalism that uh, really supports extractive industries and big mining operations in the mountains and soy uh, but tries to do a bit more of a distributing and, and, and creating welfare programs mm-hmm. with part of that money.
0: Yeah, for that matter, I, I suppose that it's very similar policies and uh, uh, Lula and Rousseff in, in Brazil, isn't it? Like, oh, Absolutely. It's, it's or, absolutely,
1: I will say, the same uh, idea. This idea of progress, development, uh, regardless of the cost, regardless of the victims of that mm-hmm. progress. So in, in Brazil, it's very similar. Soy is... King in many ways the the government is fully supportive of agribusinesses uh, and, and even though there are also you know in, in Brazil especially very important grassroots movements involving you know rural workers mm-hmm. uh, the mst especially uh, who have been kind of supportive of the government yet have become also become victims of the same uh, project uh, pushed forth by the government supporting mm-hmm. soy and, and agribusiness. But I was, yeah, I was, I was saying
0: that maybe in, in, uh, in opposition to the more, uh, Chavezian, uh, states of of South America, like, uh, like Morales in Bolivia and Korea in, in, uh, Ecuador and obviously Chavez, uh, in, in Venezuela when he was still alive. Uh, but there's, there's, uh, there's an interesting, uh, political context in South America in general, I feel as, uh, that, that, construct uh, something either based on on a more uh, uh proletarian politics or some more in what you just called uh uh experimental leftist ca- capitalism or something yeah like populist capitalism populist well. capitalism i'm sorry yeah
1: yeah i mean i think the case of venezuela is probably the the, the most radical example of the, this so-called left turning in latin america mm-hmm. i mean, in Venezuela, there's a, a very strong, grassroots, uh, a radical activism, people talking about revolution and about socialism in ways that you don't really see in Argentina or uh, Bolivia. Even Yeah, even Bolivia or Brazil. You know, Br- Bolivia became initially, right after Evo Morales was elected, uh, uh, was seen as kind of a radical experiment in, 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 in a more of a, uh, uh, yeah, bottom-up uh, democracy with seemingly radical... Uh, elements. But I think today, uh, over 10 years later, uh, or, or no, I'm sorry, less than 10 years later, almost 10 years later, mm. uh, uh, the Morales government has also toned down its initially radicalism. Uh, 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 and the same with Correa. I think today, Correa in Ecuador, Morales in, in Bolivia, Argentina, Brazil follow more or less, despite variations. I think the Bolivian and Ecuadorian cases are a bit. Uh, uh, further to the left than Argentina and Brazil. Uh, but, yeah, basically, uh, unlike the openly neoliberal model we see in North America or, or Europe, uh, this is an equally capitalist model, yet uh, trying to, you know, put up a more of a social face and, and anti-imperialist rhetoric, you know, a pro-Latin American mm-hmm. um, bolivarian uh, yeah bolivarian uh, and again venezuela the venezuelan case is a bit different uh, um, yet yeah in, in the case of argentina um going back to the issue of, of soy i mean soy has become very symbolic of uh the way this government has disappointed many people on the left uh in argentina um so and i guess you know initially i wasn't thinking about soy as a problem uh, uh, and I, st- I did start, uh, and this is in fact, my current project on, on the impact of the agribusiness frontier. Uh, but again, I became interested because I saw the rubble, the, the destruction created by, uh, agribusinesses. Uh, and this is how beginning in 2003 and over four years, I basically, uh, spent over, uh, over a year doing fieldwork uh, in the region on different trips again, over four years, uh, and I became interested in these multiple forms of ruins that are, were part of the same landscape. Mm. Uh, I was, it,
0: it seems like some some rubbles are more valuable than others. Uh, uh, well, e- actually, e- evidently, because uh, what was being destroyed in the examples you just gave was not the ruin, the Spanish ruin, which was uh, preserved, but it would be the, the perfectly functioning uh, 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 housing on site, right? So it means it means that the The Spanish rubble is more valuable than the 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 rubble being produced absolutely by those
1: well that became a very important point i I make uh, in the book and this is why the very notion of rubble kind of emerged as a concept not simply as a descriptive category uh 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 in many ways I think the book is a critique of, of the idea of the ruin as as a as a modern concept i mean many people have written about this. The, the very concept of the ruin is, is a is a product of modernity, you know, especially you know, beginning the Renaissance, but especially in the, in the 19th century with notions of nationalism in Europe, this idea that somehow ruins, especially in Europe, uh, you know, the Colosseum in, in Rome or the Greek ruins symbolized the nation and therefore needed to be preserved in, 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 in a particular way. Uh, uh, whereas, you know, prior to that, nobody cared about really preserving uh, uh, ruins. So, so, yeah, we have, especially in, in the modern tradition, and especially, uh, and there's, I think, also a very strong class dimension to this that I, I really was not fully aware of, of this until I began doing fieldwork. I was mostly working with working class uh, people, the rural poor, mostly cowboys working on cattle ranches, people of mestizo background, that that is mixed indigenous and Spanish background.
0: The gauchos. Gauchos,
1: Gauchos, gauchos yeah, sorry. The gauchos. Uh, and um and yeah, and those people were horrified by the destruction created by the bulldozers because they, they, they saw homes being destroyed and, and, and forests being wiped out. Uh um but those people they didn't have a, a sense that those Spanish ruins should be preserved. I mean, in fact, and this happens all over the world. Poor people who live in not only poor people, but you know, people who live next to ruins usually use bricks to recycle as construction materials or, or, you know, they appropriate ruins and rubble in in, in multiple ways. Mm -hmm. The notion that a a piece of rubble, a pile of rubble, should be protected, is alien to, to most people, in fact, all over the world. Yet we have this idea that some ruins, because of the assumptions we have about what happened there, are somehow worth protecting. So that's what I noticed in the field. You had some officials that couldn't care less about the destruction created by... Bulldozers and, in fact, supported them. Uh, yet, at the same time, they were horrified when poor local people would, you know, inflict minor damage on on what to them was a pile of rubble, but what to officials was a valuable uh, a ruin that needed to be preserved. So that really got me thinking about this very dramatic counterpoint between how people uh, from multiple, from different class and cultural backgrounds are affected by ruins differently and this is why we're back to issues of affect and in many ways my book uh, tries to articulate an affective not only an affective theory of ruins that is how ruins uh, affect the body in different ways depending on, on on your own dispositions to be affected by the ruin or not um but also an affective take on space in general because in many ways uh uh what I try to do in the book is is to try to look at space f- through what I would call a negative lens. And this is why issues of negativity, uh, negative dialectic Adorno are very present in my argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, I, I, in the introduction, I talk about how, uh, when I first arrived in the in the region, it's very easy to be affected by the seeming positivity of the landscape. You know, you drive around and you see farms, forests, the roads, trucks, you know, space as it is today. Uh, and, you know, it, without if you don't know much about the region, it's easy to assume that there are, there's no rubble uh, in the area. At least if you're not paying attention, it's very easy to disregard the rubble. Uh, but if you pay enough attention, if you ask people around, you begin learning that the whole landscape that seems so positive and, 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 and prosperous is, is drenched uh, uh, with rubble and rubble from multiple historical uh, moments from the days the Spanish Empire arrived in, in this area. I mean, imposing as elsewhere in, in, in Latin America, you know, slavery, massacres. It was a pretty brutal history that is very much alive in the, in the memory of, of the rural poor. People tell you about the slavery of that the Spanish inflicted on on Indians, and there are many stories of mass graves. People took me to to to, to many mounds that they claimed were mass graves. There were stories of, of bones. Uh, uh, so even though this is a, dist- a relatively distant history, you know the Spanish Empire collapsed in this region two centuries ago. You know in the early 19th century when there was a, a basically a continental insurrection against the Spanish all over Latin America. Uh, But still, despite uh, that temporal distance, there's a local popular memory very much associated with these places in ruins. Uh, You know, Jesuit stations, forts. Uh, In some cases, you only see mounds. uh, So these are not very uh, imposing ruins with distinguishable forms. Uh, yet people are, are, especially people living in rural areas, they, they're very aware of these places and, and they're affected by them in particular ways. Uh, you know, each place is a, d- a little different, but people tell stories uh, that are that, about them that are, I think, uh, at least to me, they struck me as very interesting to reflect on the relationship between space, memory, history, uh, and ruination. uh, uh- and like i said before and also how uh affect becomes i think a very key and this is why my argument my argument is very much spinozian you know how different objects affect each other uh in this case how the materiality of what we call a ruin can affect different people differently uh uh you know spinoza has some beautiful lines about this idea you know how Different enough objects can affect different people differently, and also differently depending on in, in different moments. Uh, uh, so those ideas resonated with what I was seeing in, in the field, um, and rubble became to me a, kind of an attract- an attractive category because uh, first, unlike uh, the notion of ruins that can be very easily uh, romanticized and glamorized. Uh, and there's a whole, very vast literature on on, on mm. the romant- romantic views of ruins, you well, know,
0: of uh, of romantic literature. Of oh yeah, it's, poetry, it's just this huge their, uh, yeah. uh, field, and, mm.
1: and 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 uh, you know, there's this term "ruin lust." Mm-hmm. These, these people, especially, and this is where class becomes very important. It, it, you know, this literature is is in many ways a, a clearly bourgeois mm-hmm. genre. You know that. The middle class, upper middle class Englishman who goes to the Colosseum in Italy, you know, and, and has this lust, this passion and love for the overgrown ruin. Um, well, first
0: he has to go to Italy, so that's exactly, originally. absolutely. Yeah.
1: So my point being, it's very easy to glamorize a ruin, whereas the notion of rubble, it's 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 totally different. You know, it seems uh, at least also in the modern tradition, rubble uh, uh, is used to name a worthless ruin you know kind of it evokes these kind of formless chunks of, of broken matter that are not really valuable uh and it took me actually a couple of years to to really i was always aware of this how in the literature the this counterpoint between rubble and ruins emerged even there are some scholars uh, uh who at one point argued that you know rubble is not a ruin you know in order to speak of a ruin uh, uh, you need to have a recognizable shape. There's, so th- there was an effort to to draw a boundary uh, between rubble and ruins. And I found that quite interesting. There was this kind of hostility to rubble. Mm-hmm. Uh, but
0: it's strange because I suppose what would make the difference between uh, what we would call rubble and uh, some stones, for example, just like a group of stones, it would be our the ability for a viewer to be able to reconstruct in uh, in his or her imagination what the rubble might have been before right so there there's some things that i'm tremendously interested in in this notion is the fact that each each of the, each of the stones that uh, compose the rubble is carrying a part of a past narrative uh, that you're able to reconstruct by by visualizing it otherwise it's just stone, like it's just something else right
1: yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, I think what really sets uh, rubble apart from regular stones is that it evokes a, a type of destruction that is humanly yeah, uh, that related. It, yeah. it was produced somehow by, by uh, either by humans or it was involved, say, a natural catastrophe involving human-made buildings.
0: Yeah, there's a forensic of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it evokes first. A place that was human-made, uh, uh, and that's why rubble evokes obviously this this human mark, if you if you like this this trace uh, made by humans. But it's also it's the trace of something that was destroyed. So that's why the notion of destruction is quite central in my in my argument. You know, I also write about the uh, there's a section in the book about the destruction of space, mm-hmm. um, it, trying to turn around Lefebvre's famous concept, the const- the production of space. Uh, and what I uh, um, argue in the book is that, well, this may sound obvious, but I think it's been over- overlooked in, in, in theorizations about space, that in order to produce a, sp- a, sp- a space in a positive manner, you need to destroy whatever is there before. And in, in the case of the soy boom in Argentina, that's very clear. I mean, in order to create, to produce a soy form, you need to first destroy the forest that was there before and, and the homes and the type of livelihood that existed there uh, uh, prior to that. So obviously there's a, and, and, you know, Marx famously wrote about this in the Grundrisse, how, you know, production and destruction and consumption are really inseparable from each other, different moments uh, of a certain movement that he said begins anew with production. Uh, Yet basically you can't think of production and destruction as something uh, totally separate from each other. So I try to kind of, engage with that dialectic uh, uh, by focusing on that negative moment associated with the production of space. Uh, uh, Basically, uh, you know, what is it that is destroyed in order to create the the landscapes of the present? And in many ways, that's going back to the the previous point I made about the the, the misleading positivity of of any geography. Uh, uh, In a way, my book is about the rubble of the many, many different places that over several centuries uh, uh, of the places that were destroyed in order to create the landscape we see today in Northern Argentina. Mm. Which, again, if you arrive there for the first time and you see the soy farms and the, and the gas stations and the big silos, uh, uh, this is why uh, Adorno is, is uh, uh, useful here. You know, uh, This is a, a positivity, something that is, that erases what was destroyed in order to create that positive object. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, the rubble is, is there everywhere. Uh, so, uh, so in, in, sorry, in, in my book is an attempt to, to do uh, um, an ethnographic archaeology trying to bring those constellations of rubble to light.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's talk about this negativity and the production of this negativity because there's there is a... There is an, a particular event, historical event, that we are both are in, very interested in, which is the 1871 Paris Commune, and um, maybe the situationist actually help us a little bit to think of the negativity created by the created by the Paris Commune. I mean, you know, they they obviously romanticize or uh, they the fetishize and romanticize the, the Commune uh, and and its its action, but they're they're very helpful in how they describe that they say they they say the commune created positive holes, uh and and they they talk about that in particular in the fact that there's um there's many buildings that have been uh, voluntarily destroyed by the commune because of uh their overwhelming effect that uh their symbol were um uh, representing uh i mean this is true for their uh, this is something we talk in another conversation by the way with David Gisson so it's interesting to make bridges but um, uh, so there's a, the there's a west wing of, their, of Louvre, uh, the of the Louvre which got burned to the ground uh, and obviously the, the, I mean Notre Dame almost got destroyed as well and obviously the most paradigmatic example of that that uh, I mean uh, we, we've been reading and writing quite a lot about but we, uh, which is a very ceremonialized destruction of the of the random colon uh where uh, Napoleon was uh, Napoleon Bonaparte was uh on his sculpture was on top of it and actually is back to be on top of it because the, the the entire column has been rebuilt exactly the same after the commune was exterminated um but so could you tell us a little bit about this very particular Anti-imperialist uh, 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 production of 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 ruin in in the context of a proletarian in, insurrection like the commune was.
1: Yeah, I, in fact, uh, you know, in, in the conclusions of rubble, I, I mentioned I analyze uh, the case of the commune in, in a couple of pages. You know, in the conclusions, I try to open up my argument and and analyze different. Uh, examples from all over the world involving similar cases of destruction, rubble, negativity. Um, And the case of the Paris Commune, in connection to my previous argument, uh, to me has always been fascinating because, you know, if we think of Paris today, it is also the epitome of a glamorous, beautiful, positive city. Uh, You don't associate Paris with, with massive amounts of rubble and destruction. Uh, uh, yet as we know in 1871 towards the end of the paris commune in late may early june much of the city was in ruins uh, and there there's there's very graphic photographic evidence of of of, of
0: the, like the city halls or holes are, yeah yeah uh-huh. I mean.
1: so i was always interested in how you know even in paris you see something what i have seen in argentina you know like a seemingly positive glamorous landscape that hides the the waves of destruction uh, that actually made that place, um, and the in the case of the uh, commune uh, is particularly uh, uh, also fascinating because, and this is why I also argue in in the conclusions, um, which are entitled, by the way, "We Aren't Afraid of Ruins." Uh, that's a famous phrase by uh, a Spanish uh, anarchist, Buenaventura Durruti who famously, in in an interview with a journalist in in uh, 1936, it it was a Canadian journalist uh, in Barcelona who asked him, you know, this is the the beginning of the Spanish Civil War. Uh, Durruti would, in in fact, be killed shortly thereafter, after this interview. Uh, And the journalist asked Durruti, uh, well, even if you defeat the fascists here in Spain, you will still inherit a country in ruins. Uh, And Durruti's response was quite striking Uh, uh, he said well first don't forget that we as workers we have always lived in extreme poverty uh, meaning we we are used to living amid ruins uh, uh." and and then he said don't forget that we the workers we we build stuff and, and and we we are the ones who have built all these cities so uh uh yeah if everything is in ruins we'll 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 rebuild and 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 we'll actually build something better and then he said we aren't afraid of ruins uh, and I, I was always, um, uh, yeah, quite taken by this very confident, sweeping claim to, to, to challenge the idea that we should f- be afraid of ruins. Uh, because in, in many ways, this is what I show throughout the book, that, you know, there's a, uh, this fear of ruins, this, this fear of, in this case today, you know, of, of a future in ruins, I think has a very clear class component, What I saw with these working class people in the field, the rural poor, they were not afraid of of ruins. Uh, In many ways, kind of to paraphrase uh, what the the Rutsis say, these people already live, amid rubble. You know, if you see the people who are being evicted, uh, in many ways, their homes have been turned to rubble. Uh, um, And the whole idea that, you know, people should feel anxious uh, about ruins, it it is in many ways a class-based experience. Uh, but going back to the commune, and this was I, I was mentioning Drouet because of this. Uh, uh, if you read documents about the the last weeks of the commune, it's quite amazing how you know by basically early May 1871, uh, people in Paris knew that their days were doomed. You know, the, the part that the communes were, the commune was totally uh, besieged and surrounded. They were totally cut off from the rest of France. Uh, the French army was coming in. Uh, they knew that, that uh, uh the the end was coming and that the commune was going to be exterminated. Yet uh, uh there are quite amazing documents that show that people didn't care. It was this amazing sense of exuberance and partying and and and, 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 and yeah political effervescence. Uh and, and I and I quote uh, uh an amazing line by by a journalist who published this in one of the uh journals of the of the newspapers of the commune. Just. Le Cré du peuple? Uh, yes. Uh,
0: yeah. Of, yeah. Okay. No, it doesn't matter. Yeah, la, la Tribune
1: du peuple. La? La Tribune.
0: La Tribune du peuple, okay.
1: See. Si. So, anyway, the the line that I cite, uh, I don't remember it by heart, but it, but he, this person said something like: uh, uh, that laughter is the eternal uh, prerogative of man, uh, uh, invincible uh, uh, even in a world in uh, in ruins. Mm. Uh, so there was a very, uh, uh, as I write in that in, in my book, kind of an a Nietzschean uh, type of af- affirmativity, you know, the celebration of life despite violence and des- despite the massacres that will basically wipe out thousands of people when the French army moved in. So the Paris Commune was, to me, another expression of Ruti's, uh claim, you know, we, we're not afraid of ruins. Uh, And this also relates to what happened with the end of the commune. You know, basically, uh, the French army moved in, massacred thousands of people. Thousands were executed. You know, the mass graves all over the city. Uh, uh, This is something that I also write about briefly in that section of of the book. Uh, You know, I mentioned how in my fieldwork in Northern Argentina, people will tell me about mass graves all over the place. Well, uh, the same thing happens in Paris today. There are many places where there are are huge mass graves of thousands of people killed uh, uh, by the army in 1871. And and the the Association of the Friends of the Paris Commune have been very active, putting plaques in some parts of the city. There's a very, uh, uh, to me, quite striking plaque just two blocks from Notre Dame, you know, one of the most paradigmatic places in Paris, a massive tourist attraction. And the plaque, which is two blocks away, says basically here underground, you know, beneath these streets, two to three thousand people were executed and buried, uh, uh, you know, in May 1871. So the, the mass graves that I felt were a haunting presence in, during my field work uh, uh, are also a haunting presence to at least to some people in, in Paris. Mm. So in many ways, I refer to the Paris Commune at the end of my book, kind of tr- try to trying to uh de exoticize the case of northern Argentina and show like listen, I mean this is what I write about in the book is not simply happening because this was a very violent place in in a, in a backwater part of Argentina. We can see very similar processes of ruination, destruction, rubble, and an erasure of the rubble by the state, by national elites happening anywhere in the world, even a place like Paris. That we don't tend to associate uh, with such levels of violence. Mm -hmm. Um, And finally, to add another twist to the case of of the commune, and this is something, in fact, Marx wrote about it when he wrote about his his um, text, the Civil War in in France. He noticed how uh, while the uh, the French bourgeoisie was massacring the communards, and you know, like with incredible levels of, of of violence and terror. Uh, the French elites were horrified at the fact that Paris was in ruins. Mm. There was this and here again we 're back to the Ru- to the ruti uh, the French elites they were t- terrified of, of of the idea of 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 ruins of, especially of of the idea of bourgeois ruins, you know these seemingly glamorous, prosperous buildings reduced to rubble. so I saw another uh, very telling counterpoint between uh, um, uh, between yeah, how different social groups can be affected by rubble differently, mm-hmm. uh, and how that has very clear political implications.
0: Um, so to go back to the to the idea that ruins can be also used as a sort of co- uh, coloni- colonial uh, or oppressive weapons, I want to move to another uh, a geography and talk about no longer about weaponized architecture but weaponized archaeology and how uh how in um uh in east jerusalem very often so there's uh, uh, the discovery of old ruins of the old jewish city of like several several uh hundred years uh, ago that are that are systematically used as as a as an additional uh, excuse, like like if there was any excuse needed, I mean, so far it's not been <laughs> excuse have been irrelevant. But uh, as a as an excuse to uh, to 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 evict uh, to evict and destroy more Palestinian homes. So uh, once again, we go back to the idea that uh, uh, some some rebels are more. Are more valuable than others so is that is that one of the examples that you've been studying as well in your book or uh
1: yes i mentioned that case mm-hmm. uh briefly but i do mention that in the in the conclusion mm-hmm. uh um and, and there i i um also i make the following point which is something what i did find in my field work is that Basically, the, the people I was working with, again, r- the rural poor, they were not really really interested in preserving ruins. The, the very notion of that ruins ought to be preserved because of their intrinsic value was totally, totally alien to them. Uh, but in the conclusions, I wanted to say that this doesn't mean that in other cases, uh, uh, you know, attempts to preserve ruins may not have actually important political repercussions. And, mm-hmm. and the example you just mentioned uh, is, is a case in point. I mean, there are, uh, you know, this is something many authors have written about, including yourself, how uh, um, as an attempt to by the Israeli government to, to erase its colonial nature, the very fact that the Israeli state was built on Palestinian land, there's been an active campaign to destroy Pal- Palestinian mm. ruins and to uh, erase traces of a Palestinian past. On the landscape,
0: yeah. Maybe to re-put that into historical context. Uh, right now, I was speaking about uh, the, the former Jewish city, so like even older ruins and that that they would find, and then uh, uh, to to and pretexting uh, uh, an archeolog- archaeological valuable site, then being able to destroy more homes uh, nearby uh, Palestinian homes. Uh, then what you're talking about is uh, more recent ruin which have been uh, mostly produced by their, the the massive um, uh, population displacement of after the Nakba uh, in 1949, where Palestinian villages were erased to the very last stone. And that's something uh, also to make another bridge with uh, another podcast. That's something we talked about with uh, uh, Nina Kol- Kolovratnik. Um, and... Uh, and how there is something extremely disturbing in this in this uh, absolute uh, will to erase, like not to even leave rubble anymore, like because rubble Absolutely. would be able to tell a narrative that would be a counter narrative to the ones that's tried to be imposed. So, uh, so that that's uh, that in this context, like one day I try to articulate uh, uh, the notion of the right to the ruin, like mm-hmm. the right for a civilization to actually uh, uh, mobilize its ruin to tell the, a collective narrative. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, and I think, I mean, the two cases are, are, are absolutely inseparable mm-hmm. from one another. And again, we're back to the different, a sense of different a hierarchy of ruins. Some ruins deemed more valuable than others and, and therefore worth preserving. So so yeah, the attempt to destroy traces of the Palestinian past has been inseparable from, uh, and again, Quite a few people have written about this uh the role of archaeologists trying to dig up the the you know the the ancient ruins proving you know the, the ancient, ancient uh, jewish presence uh, uh on the land which is obviously also undeniable yeah. but obviously there was a selective gaze you know yeah. it was kind of cherry picking mm-hmm. uh, and obviously there's a whole debate on, on on you know what makes a particular material trace uh, uh jewish or arab or or, or whatever uh, obviously, the lens of archaeology becomes there very subjective and politicized, um, and yes, as you point out, ar- archaeology is also weaponized and becomes politicized, especially in cases like this where obviously there's a very heated territorial dispute, which is ongoing.
0: Mm-hmm. So we are we are almost at the end of this uh, conversation. So maybe to to conclude, we we might want to insist on the fact that uh despite what runes suggests, which is a, a sort of uh look at the past um what what what's very interesting in the in this research is actually it's uh, it's it's uh, the present uh uh use of the rune for a political uh, agenda so um uh would you like maybe to to conclude this conversation by addressing that
1: yes indeed that's that's a really important point i try to make i mean i think uh In this counterpoint I I create between, you know, the fetishized view of ruins versus rubble that evokes multiplicity, fragmentation, destruction, and negativity. Uh, uh, What I'm trying to say is that the ruin, and this is clear, especially at heritage heritage sites, ruins that have, have been reconstructed and turned into tourist attractions, those places tend to evoke the past. And that's kind of the dominant... Narrative associated with the ruin as a as a fetish that ought to be preserved. It is to be preserved because it tells us about the past. What I learned through these people in the field is that to them, uh, rubble spoke to to spaces in the present. Uh, obviously, they evoked places, events that take took place in those places in the past. But for them, the rubble was the lingering presence in the present of those forces that had destroyed places back, uh, uh, you know, decades or centuries ago. Um, and that really, uh, and this is probably one of the ma- most important points I try to make in the book, that this is not simply about rubble or ruins. This is, this is really about the nature of space. Uh, uh, um, space in its imminence, I mean, the, the space of this planet, I mean, the actual geographies we encounter uh, uh, on a daily basis. I mean, basically the whole planet, the whole world is drenched in, in rubble. I mean, humans have been living on the planet, obviously, for millennia. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, there's no place on this planet, even those that seem more pristine, that is need, not free of, of rubble yeah. left by humans.
0: palimpsest.
1: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I talk, I use the notion of palimpsest, but I also inspired by Benjamin and Adorno. I, 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 I write about constellations of rubble. Okay. Uh, uh, and I like the notion of constellation because it evokes, you know, this multiplicity, fragmentation, but also something that is interconnected in, in nonlinear ways. And that's also what I found in my field work uh, uh, and how people really people drew connections between these different uh, what I call nodes of rubble. So I see these clusters of rubble as, as nodes that were in dialogue with with other clusters of rubble. In some cases, a couple kilometers away. In some cases, a hundred kilometers away people will, will draw connections. And that really was quite mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so going back to my earlier point, uh, I think this is this tells us something quite important about the nature of space. Uh, again, space, not as something uh, a positive, or only, obviously, spaces have a positivity in the sense that, you know, places exist. They are in, in certain ways. There's a positive dimension to them uh but at the same time every place every geography every landscape uh is based on waves of destruction that l- left uh, uh rubble uh again in some cases the rubble is more noticeable in some cases less so uh in many cases rubble is underground as many as archaeologists know know very well um yet my book is an attempt basically to read space through through the lens of negativity in that sense, trying to look at these traces of destruction, these traces of 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 objects or broken places uh, that tell us uh, uh, what this geography was not like uh, in the past. Uh, 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 again, the, the traces of of these uh, uh, forms of destruction that have been usually erased. uh and how a rubble is kind of a lens, therefore, to look at space from this different uh, angle. Uh, and this, to you know, as the final uh, thought on this, I mean, and this, again, is, I think, politically important because I think the dominant uh, discourses or narratives about space tend to emphasize, you know, the way places are in the present, forgetting what has been destroyed Uh, uh, in in many cases with very high levels of violence. I mean, you know, the case of the Paris Commune or or the case of colonial conquest uh, in Argentina.
0: Or even gentrification.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, So that's why I, I, uh, if you like, there's a kind of a political message in my argument about these forms of destruction that are... uh, um, Sedimenting in the landscape, and that also continue in the present, like very clear in the case of the the expansion of the agribusiness frontier. Uh, so that's the way we finish with the the constellation or the archipelago
0: of rubble. Right. <laughs> Thank you so much, Gaston, for your time and uh, for receiving me here at uh, University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Thank you.
1: Thank you. It's been my pleasure. <laughs>